All right. Welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. My name is John. And I'm Jack. And this week, we are joined by Shane from the Buffalo Naval Park. He was referred to us from mutual friend Ken from the History X channel. Uh, Shane, if you want to say hi and tell the people a little about a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Hey, John. Hey, Jack. How are you guys doing today? Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, uh, we so we do have a mutual friend in Ken from History X. Uh, he and I go maybe back about two years on our YouTube channels, and uh, we did some coordinating. We did some coordination with some videos, and uh, we've been working together ever since. And uh, you know, he told me about your podcast, and it was enjoy. You know how enjoyable it was to be on and talking movies and um, and other subjects, of course. So I'm happy to be here. That's great. So uh, you're the curator for Buffalo Naval Park, correct? Yes, that is correct. So what all does that particular institution or museum have under its span of control? Sure. Great. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we are we are a museum ship that has three tourable vessels and one static vessel that's not in the water. So we have uh, USS the Sullivans, which is a Fletcher-class destroyer, uh, uh, came into commission in 1943. We have a cruiser, the USS Little Rock, which came into service in 1945. Uh, that's a, a cruiser. And then we have a submarine, uh, USS Croker, which came into commission in 1944. And then to wrap it up on land, we have a PTF boat, which uh, is very similar to a PT boat that you would hear about John Kennedy and uh, during World War II. So that's a Vietnam era patrol, fast patrol uh, craft. Um, and that's again from the Vietnam era, so. Nice. And then we have sounds a lot like, of other. Sounds like you got a, a lot on your plate. Yeah, it's a challenging job. It's uh, worth. It's a job that's really uh, challenging and fun. And uh, so I process the collections and the donations, but then it's also getting the ships in a right period. Uh, you know, when you refurbish a compartment on board a ship, you're making sure that you're using the right color paint. You're having the furniture uh, artifacts that are from the right time period. Uh, and other things in addition to uh, processing the donations and the collections and figuring out what we actually have in our collections, which is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of items. Nice. Now, getting period correct paint, does that mean you get the lead paint? Because I hear oh. that is, that's tastier than other paints. <laughs> I think it's tastier and it lasts forever, but unfortunately we can't use it. Uh, the uh, Well, it just means the color. Yeah, just making yeah. sure we're using the right color. You know, the decking as well. Like uh, a lot of the tiling had some bad stuff in it while the ships were in service. So if we're changing out tile, we have to be careful of what we're uh, breaking it up with and, you know, getting things abated and things like that. So we're keeping the staff safe and others around us and then uh, laying down correct color tiling to make sure that it was tile that was in service or at least nice. mimicking the color of it. Yeah. So real big on uh, historical accuracy and whatnot. 
Yeah. Now there's the the Buffalo Naval Park has been open for since 1979. So uh, what is that? 45 years or so. And uh, there has not been a lot of that over the years. So I'm kind of playing catch up, uh, you know, and uh, the prior crews and uh, people like in my position uh, did admirable work. Uh, but, you know, things evolve, things change, things come out. And so we're kind of constantly evolving with uh, trying to get our ships into the right era. You know, a lot of museum okay. ships, a lot of museum ships choose an era or even a year uh, for the way they want to display uh, their ships. And we have not done that. So I've recently done that this year. <laughs> so Nice. So yeah. this is going to lead into my next question. Um, you know, obviously our the, the film choice uh, for this episode is very interesting. Um, I don't know about you, Jack, but this was not at all. I I didn't know what I was going to expect out of this, but I was genuinely like pleasantly surprised and it it's a very interesting movie um but shane we we watched the bedford incident for this episode um what made you go with this choice of film yeah i think it's one of those hidden gems of a movie and uh it really encapsulates you know it's a it's a little hyperbolic and you know, is that something that would actually happen? Yeah, potentially it certainly would happen. But, uh, you know, when specifically for our vessels at the Buffalo Naval Park, you know, two out of the three were in World War II. They uh, sank Japanese vessels. They shot down Japanese planes. And so that's kind of the spotlight. But our ships were in service for 21, 22, 23 years. So two years in World War II, 20 years in the Cold War. And so it's it's sometimes the Cold War gets minimized just because everyone sees the flashing WW2 on our ships. Uh, and it's important to help get the word out about the Cold War, uh, obviously while different, uh, had some very tense moments. And I think that's really encapsulated very well on the Bedford incident. Um definitely this was and i you know the film hits on it too because there's a lot of references to world war ii in this even though it's you know it's supposed to be post cuban missile crisis and yes. but obviously we have our our wonderful german u-boat commodore <laughs> advisor yeah. on board which operation paperclip's beautiful <laughs> right which i loved this this film is full of so many small little like throwaway lines or little tidbits that it's like it genuinely captures so much of this particular time period that like it, it really was enthralling to me so like starting with our our wonderful u-boat commander who is acting as the advisor to the captain uh you know we have our our reporter who is like oh so you were with uh adolph's navy 
And he was like, no, Admiral Donuts is Navy. And it's like. <laughs> it's right. Yeah, Who served under. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that's. Um... It... Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say it's it's interesting because, you know, it's it's funny that he's giving him grief. But like post-World War Two, every nation was snatching up you know these former like nazis like all they had to do is recant their associations more or less and it's like if you have something to offer take like all of the rocket scientists if you will it's like hey we're doing a space race now like we'll forget about the whole we'll forget about the whole nazi thing if you can build us some rockets you know right. and it's you know it's a small line that just like demonstrates this kind of like post-war mentality where not everybody's like we're still hanging on the Germans because of World War II, but it's like, oh, we, we're going to turn a blind eye to some people. Yeah, I mean, if we imagine the time period, if you're saying, right, this was, uh, you know, post-Cuba missile crisis, that's 62. So you're looking at 63, 64, 65. Uh, that's only 20 years after. I mean, that's like our distance to 9-11, you know, so it's still pretty fresh for some people. And just the devastation and despair that was throughout the world during World War II. Uh, it was hard to, and it depends on when people grow up, right? Like if you're 10 and you're seeing the fall of Berlin, it's different than if you're 15 or 20. So it depends on even your age and how you interpreted that uh, those events. And it makes it, it, there is a little of that. They, I like how they do say he is West German. Right. So yeah. instead of saying East German or under the Soviet bloc, they're saying he's he's a West German, uh, uh, you know, submariner. So that's that's that. Yeah, there's so many just like the facial expressions, especially of uh, Captain uh, Finlander throughout some, you know, he puts that little smirk on that side smile uh, that, you know, just says it all, even though he's not saying anything, you know, it's, it shows that immediate animosity that he might share uh, with the doctor and uh, Munsford who comes on board, you know, at the beginning of the movie. They, uh, they uh, really uh, got their money's worth with the uh, captain nemesis here. Cause it's a, a recurring thing in war films. It's either the, the reporter who like gets on an officer's nerve or it's the like commanding officer and, doctor like thing and he gets both of them so <laughs> you're absolutely right yeah that theme plays out of access versus classifications or classified information versus the public has the right to know uh yeah it's i really enjoyed it i was not really familiar with it until maybe a, two years ago and uh one of my former colleagues at the naval park recommended it to me and um I was just kind of in awe after I saw it. So that's I, why I recommended it. Cause it's one of my new favorites. I, so Jack, had you ever heard of this film prior to, uh, this episode? No, never in my life. And I was going to say earlier, I had no idea what this movie was about, but I knew that it was a war movie and that it was a naval film. And that was enough for me. And wow. Fuck, <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. Yeah, it, it really sums it up. Very, you know, and then the, just the truncated ending, Jack, is really 
when I saw it for the first time, I said, wow, you know, it just is something then the film just ends, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, you don't want to say too much to your audience, but, uh, you know, it just we, kind of leaves you, you know, your mouth agape a little bit, you know, we have a kind of a standby rule here, which is this movie came in, out in 1964. If you haven't seen it yet, I, I'm sorry that there, there's no such thing as spoilers for a 70 year old movie. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good. Yeah. That's nice. Um, to, you know, to tell you the truth, like, you know, I went to library school. I'm an archivist. I would have never imagined that I would have worked at a military or a museum ship during, uh, my career. Uh, I am a little different than many other people. Uh, I love history, but military history hasn't really been something that I latched onto, uh, say, early in life. You know, I didn't model, you know, I wasn't ma making ships or modeling when I was a kid. It just wasn't something, my interest in history lied elsewhere. And so even though I've been there almost six years now, I've really embraced it and have been bringing, obviously bringing myself up to speed with, I have to, with a lot of stuff, but collections are collections are collections. So no matter where you work, you learn about it because you're in the collections and you're reading letters and you're reading technical manuals. And, and so I was at a little disadvantage. I mean, I work with some people that have been building models since they were five and they know every little nook and cranny and every little, and that's not just not at our uh, museum ship or Naval Park, but I mean, it's all across the country. So it, it was something that I applied because it was an archive, right? It, the subject didn't matter to me as much as the collection matters to me. And it just right. so happens that this was the subject. So um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I never heard of the Bedford incident until about two, three years ago. Yeah, about two, three years ago or so. So you mentioned modeling so i i was one of those guys who i started modeling at a young age and that's building plastic models not you know showing off for calvin klein because i don't have a calvin klein body oh. but, <laughs> um, but one of the things that i really appreciate about movies from this time period is the the heavy reliance on models and this was one of those movies that like as like someone who's built models like i could tell which scenes they were using a real ship versus uh the ones that had just a model of a ship and was in a very enclosed space but even those scenes that i could tell it was a model i was like this is one of the better examples of model use mm. in a movie because like uh several weeks ago we did run silent run deep and mm there are scenes in that movie that look like they're shot in a pool and you're just like, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> um, so I, I, I give this film props. Like it's, I think it's on the lower end of some film aspects. Cause like this film came out in the same year that like, uh, one of the James Bond films, the like Sean Connery's James Bond films came out. Uh, Zulu came out the same year as this film, but I thought there were some scenes in this film that were very excellently shot. Yeah, the uh, 
I like that. I didn't take it from the modeling perspective. You can tell what's a model and not what's not. But, you know, when they show the scenes uh, with the ice flows, uh, those are very well shot. Uh, you know, and the star shells are going off. Those are some nice scenes where they're just kind of floating and they're they're looking out for the submarine. Uh, the submarine was different. Like all you saw was like the little periscope and that didn't look quite real. But uh, budget mistakes. Yeah, but there you go. Yeah, it's and I think this was the same year Doctor Strangelove came out. You know, so there was, you know, dark satire. And there's uh, one of the things I was interested to learn was that I think it was the writer started working on Doctor Strangelove for Stanley Kubrick. And when he realized it was going to be like a more satirical, dark, almost a dark comedy, he left the set and started working on this movie because he wanted to do a real drama about the Cold War and nuclear annihilation, as opposed to more of Stanley Kubrick's vision of a dark comedy um, and bringing his own, you know, camera eye to it uh, that he does so uniquely, Stanley does. And so it was interesting that he left Dr. Strangelove and went immediately to work on this one. Jack, Dr. Strangelove is on our list, isn't it? Yes, it is. Have you seen that film before? Mein Fuhrer, I can walk! Boom! So he has, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Ten females for every male. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm not... I, I've i seen a lot of classic films, but Dr. Strangelove is actually not uh, one that I have seen, mm, uh, so. unfortunately. So my question... So you two have seen it. How would you say this this film rates in comparison because you know you, you brought up the analogy that one of the writers shared it so do you prefer the more satirical version of like dr strange love jack or do you prefer this one which is the more serious version strange love but the thing you got to know about dr strange love it's either the funniest disaster movie you've ever seen or the scariest comedy movie you've ever seen but th this is just, it's, it's Dr. Strangelove, but taking itself seriously. <laughs> right. And sometimes a little too seriously. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the critiques of the movie. It's almost, it is almost comical in the mistakes that are made, especially towards the end of the movie, but uh, of, of the Bedford incident. But I think it, I think it has its place in that it, it slaps you right in the face with it. That how like tension, uh, you know, the crew was never off of general quarters, right? It seemed, you know, no one ever got sick. They addressed that in the beginning of the movie. Uh, oh, no one's here for sick call. No one ever gets sick. Uh, no one no believers here. <laughs> right? Yeah. No one ever wants to leave the ship for better jobs on shore. Uh, so, but yeah, there's like a tenseness that where mistakes could have been made. You know, and it's it's it, tying it back in. I I guess it's kind of also my embrace of the Cold War because we're going to start telling those Cold War stories on our three on our three ships, and uh, you know, just talking to old crew, uh, especially on the Little Rock from the nineteen seventies. There's some amazing stories, uh, you know, between Russia and in the Mediterranean, and our ships and the Sixth Fleet and NATO and the Second Fleet. 
So there's a there's some interesting stories that can rival World War II stories. It's just that there's not mass destruction going on. I always find I always find the the look of Cold War going hot to be such an interesting or fascinating topic. And I think it mm. it genuinely makes for some great media. One of my top five books is a book called Alas Babylon. Um which have either of you heard of this book? What was it called again? The Last Babylon? Oh, Last Babylon. Essentially, um, it's, uh, it's a novel about, it starts off with there being this misunderstanding between, like, there's U.S. aircraft in the Mediterranean, and, uh, like, at the time they're flying over, there's, like, uh, like the Russians are conducting, like, uh, anti-aircraft, like, missile systems test so the aircraft thinks it's getting locked on and so it's like fuck it dropping bombs and then it turns into a nuclear war and then it forwards over to this dude who just lives in like a rural area of florida and just talks about like he's like just outside of one of the like hit hit areas so it's like they deal with like radiation Mm. exposures and whatnot but like no actual destruction of cities if you will and it talks about like oh we got to fill up the bathtub with water because all the water pumps are going to shut off like uh and stuff like that but like that came out in like the 70s or 80s i think which granted is still cold war s but like like 50s and 60s is like when we think of like cold war cold war you know those are the decades where it's like truly at its height and it's like this movie very much falls into kind of like the same category as uh have you ever seen the twilight episode where they the the episode is based around this couple who has built uh like a a bomb shelter and they're having this like dinner party and then there's this oh there's an alert that's like what's that jack you mean the scary door yeah (laughs) the scary door um so there's this twilight episode where this couple has a bomb shelter that they haven't told the neighborhood about and this is you know comes out in the 50s so peak like fear of nuclear annihilation and they're having this dinner party and there's an alert that oh the russians are attacking and they go into their shelter and they lock the entire neighborhood out and like they have to stand there and listen to like their neighbors like banging on the door like let us live, help us. And then it turns out like, oh, false alarm. And then they have to come out of the shelter and look all their neighbors in the face like, oh yeah, we were going to let you die. Like, the mm-hmm. like Cold War going hot is such an interesting topic to me. Because oh, it, really ex- yeah. it, it really explores like the darker side of human nature. And that's what the Twilight Zone episode you're speaking of. That is, there's... They have multiple episodes of the Cold War going hot, too. Yeah. It was a very prescient topic at the time. Sorry I cut you off. What were you going to say? No, that's all right, Jack. Uh, yeah, because what happens is the neighbors break into the, the safe room. 
uh, and they rip out the door because they're like, well, I thought we were friends. What you're saving your kids. What about ours? And, and so they actually break through uh, into what do they call it? Like a safe room? What am I trying to think? Like a bomb shelter. Yeah. Right. And so. So everyone, if it was a real thing, everyone would have died. And the, and the, the family that built it, you know, is like, stay out, stay out, stay out. We're here. You should have done this. And they're like, we thought, you know, and so they break through the door to the bomb shelter and then it's a false alarm. And then everyone's like, oh, uh, sorry, we didn't really mean it. You know, we're still friends. Right. You know, and the, and then the family that built it is just like, uh, who, do, who are these people now? Right. You can't ever go back from that. And that's, you know, so the dinner was a nice juxtaposition between the end of the film when they're about ready to tear each other's hair out and slaughter anyone that gets in their way. And then they're just like, oh, I'll see you next Saturday at poker. And, you know, and they're like, OK, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's a really it, it, it gets to I wasn't alive at that time. I was born in uh, 50 years ago. So as uh, I was I wasn't an adult in any of that stuff, but certainly through the 80s. Um, you know, there's certainly, I remember things like time, time life magazine covers and, but you know, you're so young, you don't really know what's going on too much, but you know, for my parents though, you know, hiding under their desks in school was a thing. And, uh, so yeah, it was a very real thing for people, especially with the Cuban missile crisis, uh, and other events that could have just tipped it one way or the other. See my, uh, so my grandfather, I was very close with him and, you know, he was a kid through the forties and he graduated, I think it was early fifties, um, right around that time frame, And it was so weird because he would tell me a lot about like, uh, you know, like a kid during the forties being like, Oh yeah. I remember like seeing a news, hearing a news story on the radio about how there was a U-boat spotted off the coast of, you know, New York or whatever. But then like you would ask him about the fifties and you would literally get the like very surface level. Like this is the movie Greece. Like there was zero talk of like the stresses of like nuclear annihilation with him, mm. which I always found super like, to illustrate like how 1950s my grandfather was the story of my grandparents meeting is he took his two little sisters to a car hop to get root beer floats my grandmother was a roller skate waitress at this car hop and like she just thought it was the cutest thing in the world that here's you know, this guy treating his little sisters to some root beer floats and, you know, they go out on a date and it's happily ever after. And it's like, you guys are like, you guys are in high school and every single day you have to be hearing on the news, like, you know, you have like the Cuban Missile Crisis or you have like, oh, the commies are just about to take over South Korea. And it's like, the fact that, like, I always found it interesting that those kind of big life stresses were not something he ever really expounded upon. So I, mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of compartmentalization was going on there. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Usually you'd think for the Cold War that people would be comfortable talking about it. But 
you know, I don't know, but, you know, maybe it affected him and his family growing up and uh, you're either your mom or your dad, uh, you know, wanting to protect them. And it's it's an interesting thing. My my family's a little bit, uh, you know, older than that. I'd say my grandparents were born in the tens. Uh, so uh, they were around at a different generation and things like that. So the people that I would be able to interface with in the fifties would be my mom and my dad, you know, and they were kids at that time. So, um, but it's almost like when you talk to a world war two vet, you know, if you ever had the pleasure of meeting a world war two vet, some are very gregarious and outgoing and as time goes by, certainly, but you know, there's story after story of, you know, I, when I meet a donor, you know, and the, here's my grandfather's stuff, you know, from World War Two. He was, we think he was at o, Iwo Jima, or we think he was at Okinawa, or we think he was, uh, you know, in Tulagi or the Philippines, but we just don't know. I hear that astonishingly, astonishingly a lot of people will donate a family member, their father or something, and they just don't even know the story nor do they know how to read the records. They, you know, a lot of times they'll come with their service record, which will say, this is when they joined, these are the what they were attached to, whether it's army or Marines or Navy. And then I know how to read it. And they'll say, oh yeah, they were W Iwo Jima. And they'll be like, oh, he never told us that, right? And it, cause it's so devastating to them potentially to even think about, so. Or people just didn't talk, right? Like it just could just, they just weren't interested in the. Uh, maybe, maybe the Cold War wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> no, I think it was. I mean, my dad was in high school during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he's told stories of being in high school at that time, you know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, and there's stories after stories. Uh, one of the very interesting things about our USS Little Rock, our, uh, our cruiser that we have is that the secretary of the 75th secretary of the Navy who served for the full two terms under president Obama was on, was a Lieutenant junior grade on USS Little Rock. So I've had the pleasure. He's come on board three or four times since I've worked here, bringing his daughters or his wife. And so it's, you know, when you pipe him on, you use, you, you know, you say Navy reporting. And when you pipe him off, you say Navy departing. It's not captain. It's not admiral. It's Navy, which is a very moving thing, even though we just kind of do it tongue in cheek a little bit. We don't have the side boys there or anything, you know, like you would when he was actually secretary of the Navy. But he was in in 1970 to 1972 and, 1972 and a half or so. And he tells stories as a lieutenant uh, junior grade of what the captains would do. And one of the most fascinating stories that I heard was they would get buzzed by Tupolovs, I think they're called, the Russian bear, like those big bombers. Yeah, the, bombers. the TU-95s. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And so they'd get buzzed all the time. And whenever they got one on radar, we had a really large missile platform, uh, you know, and the overhead was they put the boxing ring there. That's where they stored their cars uh, when they went to port and the Admiral wanted to go somewhere, the captain. So that was a very large uh, open space uh, on the second level, the O2 level of the superstructure. And so whenever the captain, they'd get a reading of a, a, a Tupolev or a bear, he had this box built that said top secret. 
And so as the plane was going by, he'd time it to where the sailors would run out and just put a tarp over this box that said top secret and start to tie it down, hoping that the Russians would bite and say, oh, the USS Little Rock is carrying something extremely confidential. So even though it was an empty box, they would act like it was some super secret thing to throw off, you know, to counterintelligence that particular aircraft that they would hope to report back to command. So very interesting. So what you're saying is the the Little Rock had its own Schrodinger box, but instead of a a cat, it was something important. <laughs> yeah, sure, right, as important as a cat, right? Absolutely, it was. Uh, yeah, probably nothing in there, but they had a chain down, and they're wrapping the tarp all over it all the time, and uh, yeah, like a little Pandora's box. You never know what's in it, I guess. You know, so, but that's one of the stories that he tells. So, Jack, what would, to change topics a little bit, who is your favorite character in this film? I liked our little hard-hitting journalist protagonist. Mr. Munsford. But I also liked um, Mr. Commodore Not Z. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't serve for Hitler. I served under donut Donuts. Who served who again? But, if I remember correctly, Donuts was also the Fuhrer for a couple of days. Yeah, but details. Um, but yeah, the fact that we had a, not, a fucking Nazi reigning this guy in. <laughs> or trying to. At least attempting to, yeah. But yeah, like I said earlier, I had no idea what this movie was even about when I first started watching it, but after like 10, 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, captain's an asshole. He runs a tight ship. Kind of see where this is going. <laughs> Didn't expect nuclear vaporization of the cast though. That one I didn't have on my bingo card. Yeah. It was kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah. There was a point however where i don't I, I couldn't even tell you at what specific point it was but there was a point where i was like wait a minute this is just a fucking cold war moby dick story <laughs> wait a minute i wait, am got the bigger dick oh uh, moby did you say moby dick yeah yeah basically yeah yeah okay Mo I yeah it. it's it's a uh, moby dick but with nukes and what w one character even said like you, what was the line like there are other whales to hunt captain yeah, yeah someone did reference a whale you're right a little like, bit wow on the nose. yeah i was like wow fuck you <laughs> i i also really liked what was it quepple keffle oh, yeah, that little soft-spoken pipsqueak that was on the yeah. sonar <laughs> i can't do it i can't do it i can't see myself i can't see anything anymore right yeah, that's. I, I really liked how the doctor kind of stood up to the captain on the bridge and then he immediately backed down, right? So the whole movie, he's like this kind of self-depreciating, I wonder if the captain likes me, I wonder if the captain likes me. And then, uh, you know, he finally stands up and says for about this Quiffle guy, you know, he's got, he's coming to my captain, I'm the doctor on board. Uh, and then, but then, you know, the uh, Furlander, Finlander uh, just immediately 
barks him out and he says, oh yeah, okay, Captain, no problem. So it just kind of shows again that structure of a ship that even the doctor, you know, stood up to him briefly, but then backed down immediately when he had got challenged a little bit, you know, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah. He's a good actor that uh, Marty Balsam, I think his name is. He's been in a lot in the fifties and sixties. I, I was a big fan. Generally, I don't like reporter characters in war movies. Like they, you know, they, they have their place and they generally serve kind of like an antagonistic role. Um, you know, they're supposed to be the like moral foil to whatever war we're discussing. Um, I think like a good example of that is uh, early on in our, our podcast run, we reviewed a movie called the greatest beer run ever where Russell Crowe plays a, a reporter in the Vietnam war um which was it which is another thing that i find interesting about this film is like 64 so we're just starting to get involved in vietnam but like not full full-fledged yet um and a big part of that film grace beer run ever is showing the dichotomy of like early war like super you either have people who are like super pro america pro troops like vietnam's the right thing or you have the like hippies like wars murder babies are dying kind of thing dichotomy and in this movie we're not really seeing like and this this film obviously takes a very anti-nuclear war stance but i find it interesting that this film is kind of questioning the like military industrial complex and just the cold war in general in a time where like we're coming off of like the red scare and whatnot like it's a very interesting like juxtaposition to see a film like this be put out into the mainstream before you know anti-war and anti-government stuff really starts hitting hard in media you mean the Bedford incident or yeah. this greatest beer run? I, I've heard of that movie. The, I haven't seen it, but the bed, the Bedford incident in its place in American history, like in the time frame, for it to be, I always, that's going back to the whole like Cold War going hot thing is like Cold War going hot seems to be like the one acceptable topic to be anti war or anti government in Hollywood at this time. Hmm. Because hmm. we haven't yeah, really gone, haven't really gone downhill with like Vietnam protests yet. Right. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I, I hadn't considered this movie in its place at that time period in relation to uh, Vietnam and the ramping up of Vietnam, and you get a little of it from the captain. You know, when he's in the cabin and he says, "I will do whatever it takes to defend this." You, you know, country against all of its enemies, right? And he's talking, I believe, to uh, Munsford. And, uh, you know, you're getting a little bit of that, of that stereotypical person you would see even up like, through, like, uh, a few good men, right? Like, I stand on that wall so you don't have to and you don't have to think about it and I have to do what I have to do. And uh, so that's an interesting 
archetype, I guess. And he says it very early on, you know, as you said, be interesting before the Vietnam or before our true involvement in Vietnam. It's interesting. No. One thing I will say, and granted, this this film has a very straightforward and direct point is trying to make, which is Cold War bad, um, <laughs> to put it simply. But I also found it interesting that, you know, we're still we're still in the heat of like the civil rights movement at the time that this film is coming out. You know, this film came out the same year that the civil rights act got passed. So we are, it's, and we're still in a super tumultuous, tumultuous, however you want to say it, a super unprecedented times. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of social unrest in regards to Jim Crow and stuff. And like, granted the military had been desegregated for a while at this point, but like everyday America was still wrestling with, you know, race and all of those issues. And I, I found it interesting one that you have an African-American who is made as a main character in this film. Cause I feel like that's kind of a, a risky move for a Hollywood film to be making in this time. But not only are they making an African-American a a lead character in this film, but they're completely glossing over, like there is zero racism on this ship. Like we, we hate this guy, not because he's a different color. That's completely not an issue in this world. It's because he's a reporter. We hate him. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was a, it was kind of, a little jarring for me because I was waiting for some sort of derogatory hmm. statement to be made to him to discredit him because of his race, not his profession. And it just, it never comes up. Yeah. Interesting point. Uh, by that time, yeah, the desegregation, I think it was 48 or 49. Uh, you still had, I think there's an interesting scene where all of the Filipinos are standing with the doctor in sickbay and they're going to run a drill of, of using uh, the Neil Robertson, I think that's what the, the Robertson uh, stretchers to bring people out of spaces down below. And Filipinos still at that time were part of the supply division or uh, the S division where they served uh, the officers. Uh, and that goes back to World War II and potentially earlier uh, during the interwar period. Uh, but you're right. The animosity isn't based on uh, Sidney Poitier's race, but it's based on the fact that he's a reporter. And the animos- the animus is there right from the get-go. And you kind of wonder if it's about him being African-American, but you don't, they never touch on it. You're right. It's just that who is... It's not guy? like, it, it's not explicitly said it's because of his race. Correct. But it's like, in this time in history, you know, this is supposed to be post Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and like I said, this film is released same year as Civil Rights Bill. So I have a hard time believing that that wouldn't be an aspect somewhere along the way in this setting. Yeah, I would think in real life. uh, Yeah, that would probably be an issue. Uh, Obviously, the crew, there was not much diversity among the crew that they showed on uh on the on the vessel on the ship on the uss bedford um 
And even at that time, still African-Americans would have probably been relegated to the service uh, divisions on board serving white people. So even though they wouldn't have been segregated by birthing like they were in World War II, uh, there still would have been, you know, that, that act of service for someone else, as opposed to potentially manning the guns or, you know, now they did a lot of different things on board uh, vessels, you were firemen or damage control. <coughs> Excuse me, but uh, yeah, if they didn't talk about it, it could still have been there without it being addressed at that time period. I think one of the things that I I thought about a little bit in relation to this idea is, have you ever seen the movie Men of Honor with Cuba Gooding Jr.? Never have. Never have. So it's a good movie. It's a ter- it is a terrific film. Uh, but it, it follows the story of a guy named Carl Brashear, and he was the first African-American uh, diver for the Navy. Um, Master and Chief. Yeah, yeah, he is. But that one of the things that makes that movie so great is it's it's a Cold War era film. It is post desegregation of the military, uh, but it still illustrates how much, you know, issues that people of color were facing in the navy in late 50s early 60s you know to the point that like you know the navy had been desegregated for years and this dude is still you know fighting tooth and nail to have a non-service related job Mm. so that's that's one of those things i'm like the fact that the animosity towards Munsford is only because of his profession is in a modern lens. I'm like, this is kind of hard to believe. So in that time period, the writers decide not to address it, but it would have been there from what you're saying. That's what I feel is, is missing from this film. Oh, all right. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. You wonder about the moray of the time across the public in America and it was Sidney Poitier, right, who was very well known, one of the famous African-American actors at the time, uh, who played roles that did address race in other movies, right? So uh, I maybe it just was, it, well, someone wrote the script. They consciously wrote the script to keep it out. So it would be interesting right. to hear more of, of the writer's uh, decision on that. Um, but yeah, even through the 70s, uh, one of our ships had a couple race riots where there is serious stuff going on, barricading themselves in birthing spaces, uh, you know, knife fights. Uh, not No one was injured. That sounds intense. Yeah, they were intense. And uh, uh, it's not something that we exhibit, but I'm going to this year uh, with a display Um yeah, there was some serious, uh, you know, even so I've recently read the list of grievances that there was. So the Little Rock was about 1200 men and there was about at any given time, there was anywhere from 50 to 80 uh, people of color on the on the on the vessel. Usually it was African-American, uh, not many uh, Hispanic uh, uh, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and one of their grievances was they get treated differently in Liberty. So if they're in a Europe, 
they're treated differently than white sailors who are on liberty, uh, even going so far as to talk about how uh, ladies of the night would not uh, mingle with the African-American uh, sailors the way they would with white sailors. Uh, they We weren't selling, uh, say, products, you know, in the ship's store. You know, we weren't selling hair picks or gel for, uh, you know, things that they would want uh, for their hairstyles and things like for their beards. And, uh, you know, so they revolted a couple of times, 1973, 1974. Uh, you know, and certainly just being on board ship, they felt they were being disrespected by the white uh, CPOs, chief petty officers, senior chief petty officers that uh, who uh, they were under their command and they just didn't feel like they were being respected. So that's an interesting story that we'll be covering this year on board the ship um, that we haven't really done in the past. So even so, in the 70s, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing how slow progress is. Yeah, and we see in recent days, you know, in recent times, there's still oppression, whether or now it's uh, gender-based, uh, voting rights, um, you know, it's, it almost is building, conf I, I don't know how far we want to go here, but it's almost like building Confederate monuments again, but in the new, in the new 21st century way of, instead of building a monument on a courthouse that says, Hey, I still, I'm still looking at over, you know, you should still be looking over your shoulder, uh, it's now like written into laws and stuff like that. So it's, it's, so we, yeah, right. we take two steps forward, three steps back, four steps forward, two steps back. But the fact is we continue to move. And to me, that's the important thing is that who cares what I think, I guess, ultimately, but uh, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but that we keep on progressing and moving forward is what's important to me. There might be steps backwards, but as long as the country is lurching in a certain way, that's what's important for me. So who would you say was your favorite character in this film, Shane? Uh, yeah, I would have to go with uh, Munsford's, uh, Munsford character. You, you know, throughout the movie, he's like pushing the captain a little bit. You know, he's giving it right back. He, he doesn't want to leave the bridge. You know, he gives him lip a little bit, uh, but then at the end of the, you know, he really takes the role of the executive officer practically and says, we got to do something here, you know, and and he, along with, I think, the XO, get in his face and say, you're pushing the Russian submarine commander too far. You got to stop this. Now, that would probably not really happen with a journalist, but his arc is subtle in the beginning, you know, his character arc or whatever you want to call it is like subtle in the beginning with little pushbacks, but right at the very end, he's really pushing back, uh, quite hard, uh, you know, unsuccessfully, but, but quite hard. And so that's an interesting growth of his character. It's, it's there in the beginning, but subtle. And then it's really in your face at the very end. I think it's, uh, I think it's probably an across the board choice here that Munsford is probably the favorite as, even though I, I do like, uh, Commodore U-boat captain, but 
Yeah, he just can. he doesn't play as big of you expect him to play a bigger role, but he just he doesn't. Other than like calling the captain crazy at the end, he's more kind of just a background character. Yeah, they use him pretty subtly, right? He's mostly on the bridge wing, you know, through especially the second half of the movies on the bridge wing, just kind of scanning the horizon and and imagining what it must be like down there for the Russian uh commodore captain uh yeah but you're right it wasn't the xo it was it was him at the very end in uh the captain's ear uh along with uh munsford's uh character munsford and uh yeah you almost i almost wonder what the point of having him there was almost he was so in the background like what did he bring to the movie i'd be interested to hear what you guys thought of that like what did he actually bring to the movie I think I think he offers kind of just a it's weird he offers the ability to say a few extra lines or be a point of be a point of contention between the captain and Munsford cuz he mentions he's like you know he's advising us but at the end of the day he his heart is with you know the sub crew right um so if anything maybe it's because all we ever see of the submarine is like three or four glances of a snorkel. I, maybe this is stretching it a bit, but maybe he is just like a visual representation of the submariners for us to remember who we're actually going after. Maybe there was never a sub at all. (laughs) (laughs) Now that means Jack, we're getting into the twilight zone here. about man's hubris and they shot themselves with right. nuclear torpedoes see everybody was so exhausted from being at general quarters that they were actually chasing a whale right. and <laughs> thought it was a submarine coincidentally a white whale <laughs> <laughs> right nice yeah there's a there's there's an ancient order uh you know they have a lot of initiations in the navy and geez, I just did a video for YouTube on it. Like there's the order of the whale, whale banger. And that would be for any de- uh, destroyer or uh, reconnaissance plane that bombed a whale that they thought was a submarine. You are now <laughs> initiated into the order of the whale banger uh, because, you know, you're just your eyesight was off or you're, you know, it's just at the right time of day where you can't really tell if it's a whale or a submarine. You're tired. You're tired. Yeah, it's you're on edge, right? I'm trying to imagine dropping a J dam on a whale. (laughs) Well, our submarine, the USS Croker, her first kill was a whale. She accidentally ran into it when she was uh, submerging, and then of course, you know, you have the whole you hit it with the the with the bow, and then it rolls underneath the whole ship, and they're just like, "What is going on?" Or the whole boat. And then, of course, it gets in its tor- in its uh, propellers, and that's the end of the whale. But they surfaced and said, "What was that that we just hit?" And there's the blubber and every and the blood everywhere sitting from the whale. So, please I don't tell know me if... that they they put a you guys have a whale kill marker on your sub. <laughs> we do not, but I would like to do that. Yeah, I would like to do that. Uh, I so will I, buy I... the bucket of paint for you to do that. <laughs> I... 
Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, we have a kangaroo on our battle flag, so why not put a whale? And that would be my, like the official battle flag does not have it, but that would be a little, uh, you know, a little uh, curator. What's the word? You know, liberty, uh, liberty, or uh, like literary. When you take liberty, yeah, just a little curator liberty there. You know, I would take for that. Order what of the whale banner. The, uh... Discretion, curator discretion. Yeah, curator discretion. Thanks. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's in our war diaries. We have it right there. And so they just left Pearl Harbor and boom, that's what they do first. So next thing you know, you're going to have uh, the guys from uh, Whale Wars come boycott your museum. <laughs> I know. Or Greenpeace, the boat will pull up into the Buffalo River on Greenpeace. Uh, you know, from Greenpeace. So, like, what what are your favorite movies that you guys have critiqued? Uh, uh, you know, it, it, comedy or satire or serious or drama or, like, what maybe not just where's, the, where's this movie rank? I'm not asking that, but, like, what are your favorites or your favorite topic? You know, I think the favorite movie we've ever reviewed, and I think John will agree with me on this, is a movie called Below. It's also a naval war film. If I could punch you. <laughs> <laughs> of course it isn't. The movie wasn't great, but I just wanted to fuck with Johnny boy. So uh, you, you mentioned you caught U571. Um, the thing is, is that on this podcast, submarine films kind of hold a special place just because mm. they, they have... They're almost their own genre within war films. Um, they have their own tropes. Uh, not to mention, I like, just, I love submarines. Um, I'll sh see if I can't show you it, but I've got... Interesting. Oh, so buff. I know. <laughs> just wanted to yeah. show off his muscles. For, yeah, look at for our ball. listeners at home, I'm showing off a tattoo, but... Um, Is that any particular class of submarine, or...? Uh, <laughs> It wasn't meant to be. Okay. Uh, I just told my tattoo artist, hey, I want you to do uh, a submarine in American traditional style uh, because I had a, a close family friend, very influential to me in my, my younger years, who he served on the America's first nuclear-powered submarine, the Nautilus. Yeah. Um, but all of my tattoos are American traditional, so I was like, hey – if you want to go more like 1940s style for the sub, have at it. And uh, he went with the very identifiable Type 7 U-boat. So I was like, eh, cool, whatever. Oh, interesting. Okay. Type 7 U-boat, yeah. And just because, I don't know if you caught the detail, but it's getting hit by a torpedo. And uh, before I said, yeah, cool, uh, I did like a quick Google search. I'm like... Did a sub actually ever get hit by a torpedo? Because I was like, I would hate I to have. Up. I was like, God, I can't have a historic like that. I can't have a too terribly historically inaccurate tattoo. But there is ex exactly one submarine or one U-boat to have been sunk by another submarine. So I was like, okay, cool. Yes, I think so, you're right. I don't remember the the belligerence, but yes, it was America and. Uh, and Germany, if I'm not mistaken, or there maybe was one in the Pacific too, but exactly one instance 
you know, of course, it was it probably was the Atlantic because we weren't really chasing submarines in the Pacific, submarine to submarine. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, it is an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting uh, life, and it's been so interesting learning about the submarine that we have, and then the Gato class submarines uh, and Vallejo class, the fleet. Uh, those are the mostly the classes that are still around today uh, that you could tour and just the life on board and the fact that, you know, they're like D, they're like uh, hybrid cars. That's how I describe them. You know, sometimes you're running on gas, sometimes you're running on battery, just like the technology in a hybrid car today. And that's what helped win uh, the war. It's so it's so interesting. And uh, the guys, the submariners that served aboard, you know, had a unique had a unique existence. Bless them. It definitely sure. is. And like this film, I don't know if it, I want to count it as a submarine film, even though we never actually see the submarine or see inside it or anything like that, but it is about hunting a submarine. And uh, it just, I found it interesting because with like submarine films, we always get like, they're running away from a ship that's chasing it. And they're like, we're going to go under the ice pack or like we're going like they have to survive the depth charges and all that and like all their little tricky moves and stuff like that so seeing a submarine hunt from the other side was interesting for me and i think this film had the potential to be kind of boring in that respect but you know they honestly i i felt kind of like on the edge of my seat despite the fact we never saw the submarine like mm. just I mean, granted, they were able to keep you engaged with like the dialogue and whatnot, but you know, there was there was more to it than I thought there would be. Not just like, oh, we're sailing around with the sonar going off, you know. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. By that time, sonar is pretty good. Sonar was not good in World War II, even into the fifties. Now our submarine was converted to a hunter killer in 1953 and they did a lot of that tracking uh they just parked themselves in the north atlantic kind of where that film is made uh near denmark and iceland greenland or you know where it's set i should say not made but where it's set and uh and they would just park themselves and just listen to all the traffic going by whether it's a russian merchant uh capital ships or other submarines and uh you know, so I, I think it does give, that was a little more cat and mouse, I think submarine to submarine than this one is a little bit, but um, yeah, you get the pinging and things like that, you know, and the echo back. Uh, so sonar then, you were able to track, you know, earlier submarines was like a searchlight. You only got 14 degrees out of 360, and then it would loop around, and by that time you could lose the, sub, uh, lose the target uh, pretty quickly. It's interesting. So did you see Greyhound? I have. I have seen it. So that's one of those other movies that it's like, how interesting can an anti-submarine warfare warfare film be? And Greyhound is one of those films that I'm like, this really like the for being a very like technical film, it's like it really engaging. It is. And you're right about the technical. When I saw it, I said, oh, my God, how many people would actually understand what's being said here? You know, 
uh, certainly guys who are served in the Navy, people like myself who like live in the world, even though I didn't serve. Uh, but yeah, it's like the language is very Navy acronym heavy and you got to catch it or see it a couple of times to really like get what's going down. Um, yeah, I thought it was an enjoyable movie too. It's, it's a segment that they don't really cover, you know, other films don't cover like the convoy experience. Uh, the one thing I, I didn't like out of, uh, Greyhound was, uh, <laughs> again, it, it comes down to the Yubo commander where it's like, he's talking to them over the like radio channels. Like, I see you Greyhound. We are coming for you. It's like, come on guys. Like really? Right. <laughs> I know. That's funny. Yeah. They put it on loudspeaker. Everyone can hear it. I mean, I don't know. It's. But they do something similar in uh in in the Bedford incident, right? They have the Russians that, speaking to, through the I wanted to ask you about that. Is that I, I feel like being able to transmit something via like radio frequencies makes sense, but like is transmitting via sonar like a thing? Like it is the way they present talking to the sub in this film like an actual thing? That's a great question. I've never studied it with our submarine. Um, I, the technology would have been there, but now you have to have the right thermal layer of, of salt water, depending on where you're at, you know, so the degradation of the signal doesn't disappear. I mean, you know, at some parts in the film, they were 2000 yards, 3000 yards, and then they were up close, obviously towards the very end. Uh, but yeah, I think it would depend on, I, I think it, it would get translated to the Russian submarine um, if someone's listening hard enough. But I mean, I think really the salination of the water would really matter. Uh, you know, the wave direction, you know, things like that. So it's interesting that I have not covered that in my professional life at work. No one's ever asked me, oh, would they be able to communicate uh, ship to sub or sub to sub just by talking uh, through sonar? Uh, so yeah through the through well the water. got got your little homework assignment i do thanks john you're well you're you're it. welcome for uh for a that should be a youtube video for you just like examining yeah. the accuracy of that one particular scene yeah i'm writing it down right now thanks a lot <laughs> yeah that's cool that one's for free next idea is going to be about tree fitty okay got it yeah you'll need it for DraftKings, right Right. God, I hope I, I win this weekend. Oh, boy. So the game is tomorrow. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yeah, so for our, for, our, for our listeners, we are recording this pre-Super Bowl. Um, oh. It, it's fine. We, we're always, <laughs> our recording schedule is always off. Like, I, I remember referencing Christmas once or... Or no, it was like 4th of July and it was August, so. <laughs> yeah, we do that too sometimes. We'll film a video well in advance and then I say something and I'm like, oh crap, I got to go back and refilm it or something. But uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, this is an interesting topic and, and thank, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys talking about it with me. It's, uh, you know, it's, so, there's so many, there's so many goddamn systems that's one of the biggest frustrating things to me as there's so much to learn. And, you know, I'll, 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 one day I'll be doing a video on a, on the sonar, 
I didn't go to fucking sonar school, right? I, 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 I don't, I didn't have a technical manual when I was 18 learning about this. Then the next day I'm trying to learn electronics and, oh, you know, this junction box goes to this transformer and then what the hell is a volt and an amp and what's the difference between those things. So it's like, I'm trying to, you know, learn all this stuff and I do it sometimes successfully. Sometimes I mess up royally. Uh, but it's, there's so many millions of things to learn on board these ships. It's, it's, it's really one of the greatest challenges. And sometimes I fail fucking miserably. You bringing that up, uh, brings me to one of my favorite lines in this film, which I forget who says it, but somebody says, he's like, we're on a floating IBM machine. I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm like, yeah, IBM has been around for a long time, hasn't it? But I was also like, man, that, that line aged remarkably well. Cause like, <laughs> cause yeah, if you like remember, it. IBM came out with, uh, God, what was it called? Uh, Watson, the, the mm-hmm. computer that could play Jeopardy and it beat Ken Jennings. Right. Um, I was like, God, this, like. There are some things in these older films that they'll say that like reference a prop, like a, a, a company or some sort of uh, product. And like, unless you like studied the time or like an old man at heart, like I am, you'll be like, what the fuck is that? Like, like Moxie, for example, uh, a book I really enjoy is uh Stephen King's 112263, which oh, yeah. talks about, you know, the this guy who tries to stop the Kennedy assassination by time travel. Um, but like in that book, it references Moxie all the time. And I'm like, unless you're kind of a nerd or look it up, you're not going to know that that's a soda brand, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so hearing the, oh. the IBM line, I'm like, wow, that that is one of the few times that something has translated very well. Yeah. And when they turn the ASRock machine on, it sounds like the Death Star. You know, all those numbers light up. One, two, three, four, five, six. And uh, it goes, or whatever. It makes some wheels. And it's like, that's the sort of stuff. When I'm walking around with people and I'm giving tours, I say, we are looking at something that's now dead. Right? It's static. There's no sounds, there's no people, there's no farting, there's no yelling, there's no none of that organic stuff that goes on board a ship. So I try to explain what life was like aboard when it's near impossible because you have on the destroyer, you have 300 men on the, on the sub, you have 80 or 70, and then you have 1,200 men. And they were all looking to cut corners, they were all looking to do things quicker and easier because everyone's inherently lazy. And so I'm telling stuff out of the technical manual. And that's not a lot of times the way they actually did it. And the crews are now getting old enough to where it's like, well, I don't really remember, you know, like I ask everyone who comes aboard that served, I said, well, what did you do in this space? And they're like, well, yeah, I think it was something like this. But now, I mean, it was 50 years ago for many people, you know, and their memories aren't that long. But there's a lot of that corner cutting, uh, you know, stuff that I can't describe because it's a static display. It's it's kind of a dead display you know all of the people were stealing everyone's money left and right because you got paid in cash you know so it's it's just like a city right there's theft there's arguments there's fighting there's good times there's you know so it's some people love their life on board some people hated it 
They said, I, you know, I'll talk to people and they say, well, I've got an ashtray from the croaker. Hey, why don't you ever come down? Have you ever been here before? Have you been? He's like, I'm never stepping foot. I'm never stepping foot in that fucking boat again. <laughs> I hated my time on board the sub. I never want to see it again. You know, and then you get people that not everybody has fond memory. Not everybody yeah. has fond memories of their Your service. mileage may vary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Depending on the time period, what your job was. Yeah, totally. So it's brings up interesting things. But yeah, IBM computers, the analog computers that, that uh, you know, the gun plot computers, those that's some fascinating stuff. They use rack and pinion, you know, rack and pinion gearing and differential gearing and all with hand cranks and it calculated out perfectly. Uh, you know, we just don't we don't need to do that stuff anymore. Now it's just one instead of five people standing around a analog computer with hand cranks. Now it's just one person pushing a button and playing a video game. It seems almost sometimes. <laughs> So one thing I'd like to bring up that um, apparently Woody Allen was offered the part of Merlin Queffel, but had to turn it down. <laughs> imagine. Just imagine. What? Oh my God. Woody man. Allen as Queffel. I, I don't know, sir. I, I, I just can't find the submarine. <laughs> that would be... I, I don't know. It was right there, and now it's gone. <laughs> you know, it's so strange because it was there, and now it's gone. <laughs> Talking with his hands on, frantically explaining. Missed opportunity. That is that, that yeah. almost as good as Bon Jovi being in U571. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys talked about that. I think Ken, in his weird sort of way, he said he thought his character was great or something like that. Like, did say he really I mean, enjoyed. it wasn't a bad character. Yeah, that's true. It's just funny when they do stuff like that, you know. I don't know. I can't think of another example off the off the top, but you know, Star Trek they do that sometimes. Like they'll take like a Trekkie who's popular in another field. Uh, the guy from Rage Against the Machine. I can't remember the guitar player. T Tony, uh, maybe his name is. I can't I, remember. I think I. I you you say that and i can't remember it either but i know who you're talking about yeah yeah like he had a little bit part in star trek voyager because he's a huge star trek fan so they had him stand there and say good morning captain or something like that you know so it's so they take people famous from in another field you know another celebrity field and and put them in that that's interesting I, I, why would they cast him i don't know maybe he did a grandfather in world war ii or something like that you know i don't know why did we cast zach galifianakis into a submarine movie what was he in? Not below. Below. Oh shit! I'll have, have you know. I'll have to see this movie. Oh my god! <laughs> you are so is it like mystery your... science theater worthy or something? Or no, no, it's not. Okay, so a, I can't. A brief, can't... a brief synopsis. Imagine, if you will, the movie poster puts it this way. It's not even remotely close to this. The movie poster for Below sells the film as U571 meets Poltergeist. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't even come close to that. It It is a D tier, not even a B movie or a C movie. It is a D tier horror movie that's not even scary. And it's a, it gets everything about submarines wrong. It's, it's a horrible film. <laughs> oh my God. But, but I'm going to tell you, 
go ahead and watch it and then mm. listen to our episode i but you're going to watch this film and i guarantee at some point you're going to bang your head off a wall at how stupid it is <laughs> you know i'm gonna i'm gonna wind it up uh probably tonight or tomorrow i mean i think it's a. Uh... So not even Mystery Science Theater 3000 worthy. Like you're saying it's below that no. sort of. It's not even worth it. No. Oh my As somebody God. who loves submarine movies, this movie is terrible. Wow. Okay. What other submarine movies are terrible? I don't know. Uh, mm. You know, everyone always asks if I've ever seen Down Periscope, and I never have. I think you guys addressed that in one of your podcasts, too. Ken was so disappointed when uh, we told him that Down Periscope is our most downloaded episode. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, it's it's probably pretty pop. It's it's comedy, right? Because I assume it's a comedy. Yeah, it, it's yeah. Kelsey Grammer, Toby Huss. Uh, who is that actress from NCIS? I forget her name. But um, we we enjoyed that film. It's not like a terrific movie by any stretch of the imagination but it is a fun movie mm. um but yeah we're closing in on like four thousand downloads for that film or that wow. podcast review and it's mind you we we average like 50 to 100 per episode normally mm -hmm. uh so the fact that that's our like number one episode just really kind of blows our mind uh, that it's so far above, say your average views. You know that's that must be a beloved film. It must be one of those films that the, the you know that's a you know an underground hit or whatever those are called. What are those called? Shit, I don't know. But you know, uh, called cult classics. classics. Yeah, yeah, it's like a cult classic film or something like that. I'm not sure if it really qualifies as a cult classic, but really? we we can we can call it that. Okay. What do you think, yeah. Jack? Is Down Periscope a cult classic? Yeah. Yeah. 4,000 people agree with you. Yeah, so uh, no doubt yeah, about it. Yeah, apparently. I would say that. Yeah, you made a reference, I think, to a montage, and I immediately texted Ken because I could tell he didn't get it. So that must have been out of Team America World Police, and you guys started we to sing <laughs> We Is reference that, Team America here a lot, yeah. Okay, good, because I, he, you know, he kind of just brushed it off like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I texted him immediately saying, you got to see that movie because you obviously don't get the reference uh, about a montage. And that is that is one of the greatest military movies I've ever seen. Team America World We Wars. We have it on our list. I just, I don't, I want to do it justice. I want that episode to be done right, and I, I don't know when we're going to get to it. You know gotcha. what I mean? There's there's some things it's like I don't know if this is the right word, but it's like I gotta give it its due respect. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> you know? I like it. It harkens back to the Thunderbird days of the sixties. Um, you know, there's a long line of of marionette tradition, you know, that they really uh they forward very well, I think. <laughs> it's just a great movie too, by the way. You know, it's just it's one of those classically oh, funny movies. And it's so quotable and uh you know we we do by our definition which is very loose around here apparently but we do consider team america a war movie so yeah absolutely the gwat right global war on terror man wherever it yep. is bringing war bad on karma. terror counts yeah bringing Real bad war, karma war. to the enemy
<laughs> That's right. You know, sometimes I always think back to the woman sticking her head out the window and you gave up on life, didn't you? And I say, oh, yeah, you know, so I look up and I say, yeah, sometimes that's me too, man. You know. my, my, I think my favorite part of that entire movie is when he's first being like the mission briefing. If you find yourself in the hands of the enemy, you may feel the need to take your own life here and slides him a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on in the movie, when he loses complete faith and has a crisis, crisis of identity, He's sitting in a bar, drunk, just staring at the hammer. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I, I didn't, I didn't bridge that connection, but yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then he goes outside and he throws up, <laughs> and, and then that's that woman where she sticks her head out, you know, in the alleyway at the dumpster, right? And she's like, "You gave up on life, didn't you?" <laughs> And that's the line I use, you know, oh, I look up at the, you know, the dumpsters right there. I'm in some back alley in Buffalo, you know, <laughs> so many great, of us. so many great songs too. One of which we've, uh, we've already gotten the chance to, well, we always make the montage joke around here, but we also, uh, we did, we did a review of, uh, Pearl Harbor. So we have, uh, a, a sh uh, we have a short clip on our Instagram of, uh, uh, the scene that's like shows how bad the acting is in Pearl Harbor and is followed up by the the musical scene of Pearl Harbor sucks and I miss you. <laughs> nice. I don't know what's that Pearl Harbor sucks and I miss you. What is that? A reference? Uh that's where he uh he's like rediscovering himself. So it's like it's right before the like freedom isn't free. Oh, okay. <laughs> you did that well. I like that, yeah. You got that real gruff voice. <laughs> that's yeah, that's good. Yeah, Pearl Harbor's the, a, a pretty bad. Movie. But the song goes, uh, "Pearl Harbor sucks, and I miss you." And it just oh. the entire song. The entire song is about how bad Pearl Harbor is, but it's supposed <laughs> to be like how he misses his girlfriend who's still with World Police. <laughs> nice, nice. That's fun. Uh, so, Jack, so, what are, uh, or go ahead, Shane. No, no, that's all right. I was going to say, so below, below is one of your tops, you know, here that you have. I, I hate both of you so much. <laughs> I would, honestly, I, I like any episode we do with a guest just because, you know, we have a, we have a big list of films that we pull from uh when we don't have a guest and i think it's super easy to fall into the trap of doing kind of like the big name films where it's like spoiler alert our our next episode we're recording is saving private ryan but we're doing that we are we are doing that with a guest and it was his request uh so we've we've purposely have held off on that film but like um you know, I think a common thing that could be easy to fall into is like, you want to do these like big name movies like Troy or Saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down, which they're all fantastic films. But also it's like, when we have a guest like you on, you know, neither me or Jack had ever heard of this film. And, you know, the way you describe it, I, I think it's very apt, which is this is this is truly a, a gem of a film that needs to be seen. Hmm. Um, 
But one, we had never heard of it. And two, even if we had heard of it, it would have gone on our list and there's a solid chance it would have sat there for a long time. Mm. So that's one of the things, like when I say I really enjoy episodes with guests, I mean it because it makes us examine things we probably wouldn't. Yeah, I, I can see that. Right. There's a, uh... It kind of forces forces an issue on you that maybe you would have gotten to at some point, but it forces uh, maybe you guys to look and to talk about it, whether it's a serious film or a flop film or a, a D film or, you know, any sort of film. If that's that your goal is to speak about movies and to talk about your love of movies, uh, war films, no matter what era it's from, uh, I'm glad, that, at least for me, that, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, like you five seven one. It's like okay, I'm surprised you haven't covered uh, Saving Private Ryan already. You know, it just seems as though that that would be one of the big ones that you would have covered already. But yeah. it is. We were waiting um, on it. Yeah, we were waiting for the right time for it. Um, and I've made this joke before, but you know, with Saving Private Ryan, like yes, we're we're going to have our own views about it, and we're we're going to examine it, but also some films like saving private ryan it's every everybody does it you know uh you look at any other war movie podcast shocking i know there are other war movie podcasts but we're the best no. one i assure you <laughs> john and jack i love it that's great thank you thanks uh, for having me then we we've it's been a pleasure having you and i can assure you this is at least one of the top 25 war movie podcasts out there um <laughs> very good but that's a common thing is saving private ryan for most film review youtube channels podcasts internet lists if you type in war movies in google saving private ryan will be one of the first results you get so and there's a reason for it it is a landmark film uh but that being said, you know, I made the joke where it's like, okay, let's get this. I can get this review done in 30 seconds. Wow. What a great film. Tom Hanks, spectacular, like five out of five. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> that's why I, I like having guests on is we, we get to examine these kind of lesser known things. Um, but as a, a brief overview, our next episode is saving private Ryan. Uh, and I'm happy to announce that the guest for that episode is, uh, Andrew Biggio, who is the author of The Rifle, which I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Um, it's a, it's a terrific book. Uh, basically he is an individual. He himself is a, uh, veteran from the global war on terror. Uh, and beginning of his book, it goes into, you know, he kind of is going, he went through a little bit like trying to rat, not rationalize, but kind of understand his own service. And he had a neighbor who was a World War II veteran. Uh, so he went out, he bought a, an M1 Garand rifle and he brought it over to his neighbors and basically having this rifle and his neighbor's presence like it unlocked like so many memories and it like it opened this guy up to like his experiences during world war ii uh it's now become this huge project he just released a second book uh involving the same rifle but essentially what this guy does is he has this m1 rifle 
He visits with a World War II veteran. Uh, the vet gets to hold it. And basically it's kind of like this this bonding tool, if you will. Open It, it opens these vets up. Uh, and at the end of their, their conversation, uh, each veteran signs this rifle. So now there's like three or 400 signatures on the rifle. And now it's, it's like this big, like, it's a traveling piece. Like he, he goes to like VFWs, he goes to these different events where he gives speeches and like everywhere he goes, the, the rifles on display for people to look at, like, here are all these people who have shared their stories with me because of this one item. Wow. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Yeah. That's, it's great that you're having them on too. Amazing. Yeah. So he, I, I, I would find it hard to think if, if there's any guests we were going to do saving private Ryan, I think he is probably the best choice for that. Uh, just because of his extensive involvement in the, the world war two veteran community. So, mm. But, yeah, that's a great choice. Good for you guys. You you, you uh, picked that one off. That's awesome. And that's your next one. Yep, I'll be more than happy to uh, to send you the uh, the links to his social medias and whatnot. Yeah, that would be great because maybe we'll uh, see if we can engage with him and get him at to the Buffalo Naval Park for maybe a talk or something like that. I think people would really enjoy that. So we're a naval park, but we're also a military park. Well, he's he's interviewed guys from the Air Corps, from the Navy, all all the branches. Wow. You know, he's he's not selective about like, oh, you didn't carry an M1, so like if you're a world that's one of his big things is with the dwindling World War II veteran population, it's literally if you're a World War II vet and you're alive and you are willing to tell your story, he listens to them. So mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of dwindling. We talk about that too because our ships are World War II era, and at some point, I, I tell I talk about the ships in a way that there will be the last standing veterans of World War II will be the ships themselves after all the guys pass, and we have to begin thinking in that way because that's a different way of telling the story. There are people around that served aboard that are still alive, but at some point, in say in the next 15, 20 years, probably. 99% of them will be gone. And then the ships will be from an era where there's no one that has any memory of it anymore. You know, any of that firsthand memory. And so projects like that, like the rifle captures this time period that uh, will be utterly important. That's utterly important now, but you know, in 50 years, that will be the collection or the archive that people would use. Great job. That's awesome. I look forward to a, uh, I look forward to listening to that one. Yeah, I'd like to hear what this yeah, individual has to say. It should be a, I, I think it's going to be a good one. Um, so kind of moving on to our, our next section of the show we like to do. Jack, what are, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I got my tried and true usual, the Berry Noir beer. One of my favorite beers. I also okay. got a Mellow Yellow from Burger King. <laughs> I'm double fisting tonight. As the, as would be tradition on a naval vessel, mellow yellow. Yep. Mellow yes. tra traditional <laughs> naval drink, right, Shane? You got Hell it. Yeah. Yellow, mellow yellow was everywhere. You know, I'll go into a space and there's the can from 1975. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
shit there it was it's the ubiquitous <laughs> ubiquitous mellow yellow i love it it's got that delicious citrusy tart flavor that uh you know you just can't be found anywhere else right on I would I like to say I, that Mellow Yellow is uh, not our sponsor, but they could be. Exactly. <laughs> owned by wholly owned subsidiary Pepsi Corporation or whatever they are. I don't know. But hey, yeah, I would I sell my I soul a... to Pepsi. What was that? I said I'd sell my soul to Pepsi. Oh, I'd sell my soul to Coke, but not Pepsi. Pepsi's too sweet. I had a Coke tonight. I don't. I'm, I'm upstairs. If I was downstairs, I'd go get a glass of bourbon. Um, which is kind of my drink. Well, it's a lot of people's drinks, but that's what I drink if I go out. I uh, I like the brown stuff, you know, the brown liquor. You're drinking something clear. Yeah, uh, in memory of all those poor, innocent Russian submariners. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. Sub. Submariners. Submarine. Yeah, I remember I got chewed out. Yes. Because of I. <laughs> Submariners of all the well, they are Russian, so they could be submariners. Um, <laughs> yes, they are. In, Let's say that. In honor of all those poor Russian sailors on the submarine, I am drinking some uh, just vodka on the rocks. Vodka is one of those drinks that I enjoyed too much as a teenager, and now I can never drink it again. I can't smell it, you know, mm. like all those things. Um, yeah. I had a. Uh, I had a, a similar experience and you're you'll probably find this amusing but uh have you ever tried crown royal maple oh no no oh it's a it's a terrific whiskey it tastes like you're drinking a, a waffle um <laughs> nice and so the first time like in my i i drank plenty prior to this point and had gone intoxicated plenty before this point but i mean like the first time i ever got like puking drunk <coughs> was on a bottle of crown royal maple because i was like god this is so tasty and like i i cleared a bottle of crown maple in an evening by myself oh my which wow. that you know, that tells you enough that that's not going to make for a good evening or right. good rest of your day um so yeah I love crown maple, but now not only can I not drink that, I can't stand pancakes or waffles anymore. So that's how bad it turned me off to it. Oh man, that sucks. Yeah. I don't get turned off by potatoes, <clears throat> right? So I can right. still eat a potato uh, or French fries or something like that. But for, to, for you not even to be able to have pancakes or you know, you may get that queasiness again coming back or, oh, I'm so sorry. That does suck, John. That really was bad. Almost as bad was a couple of weeks ago I did a torpedo juice for one of our reviews. Oh, I heard that. What What is that? that that's, uh, well, originally it was denatured alcohol because that was the fuel source for torpedoes mixed with some sort of juice of some sort so i did the closest equivalent today because i don't have access to torpedo torpedo fuel <laughs> uh shockingly um is everclear mixed with tang oh yeah it i i did that episode with ken 
and uh, I immediately took like a three hour nap afterwards. So. Oh boy. Ooh. Yeah, that is good for you to be able to handle that. You're of the age where that's probably still something that you would at least attempt and still say you could shrug it off. And after a couple hour nap, you're probably feeling better. Uh, that's, yeah, I would get knocked for a loop, I think. I'll be back. Did a lot of Mad Dog 2020, though, too, as a kid. I'll be back in a second. I got to use the bathroom. Of course. Had to uh, had to have the Mad Dog 2020 when I was a especially in college that was our drink of choice see four loco was the the big thing when me and jack were in college yeah i've never even heard of that i don't know what that is oh you are better off for not hearing about <laughs> okay. it okay so four loco came in these big uh you know like the tall monster cans sure yeah they're they're, they're essentially like 40s, but they were a super high level, uh, out like a high level alcohol drink. Essentially, imagine if you like mixed. It was like a vodka Red Bull, essentially oh, in a can, boy. but like yeah. but like two or three times as strong. So like the caffeine content in it was through the roof. The alcohol content was through the roof, and it was like. If you had two of those, you were done. Yeah. Like that's how that's how strong oh, those things were. And they got I can't remember what exactly happened to them, but they went away for a while. I don't know if they got banned or if the FDA got after them or something. But they have since come back but with a significantly lower mm. caffeine caffeine concentration which changes its potency. Yeah, maybe kids were having heart attacks or something like that. Or, yeah, I mean, it's just like when I was a teenager, Jolt was a thing, you know, like it had just come out, like, and it's like three times the caffeine and 17 times the sugar. And it's just right. like, you, you know, I would be afraid to drink that stuff now. I, I drank it as a teenager, right? But you could do anything as a teenager. Uh, but nowadays, I would be like, oh no, my heart's going to explode or something. You know, it's, it's just, yeah, I, I, I'm done with the, like, heavy social drinking, you know, going out on a Thursday night or Friday night or Saturday night, you know, that's just something that I put away probably 15 years ago, but I do enjoy bourbon. You know, I had a few last night, uh, just hanging out and, uh, it keeps me mellow, you know, it's nice. And it, it does, it does uh, change your mindset a little bit on certain things, you know, it's, it's altering. One of the things, one of the things I do miss is the bar scene from a college town and granted i'm i'm too old for that now because okay. like i remember i went bar hopping and this was like four years ago i wasn't that far removed from college at that point maybe like just a few years and i was like god this is stupid i can't keep up like this <laughs> but one of my favorite bars when i was in college well two of my favorite places one was called uh olc it was uh short for old lumber company and what they would do is on a wednesday night they had a drink special called the booze buffet and it was like it was 12 dollars at the door for unlimited wells very nice (laughs) god that's yeah that's that's a college bar right you know that's that's what it is oh my god oh boy my other my other go-to bar, I went there significantly more because at the uh, 
at the time I was a, a firefighter. So that was where everybody in the fire department would go was this place called Leo's. Uh, but they had this terrific drink special at the end of each uh, finals week, mm. which was if you came in with either a rejection letter from a job, a I've arrived failed fight. Hi, Jack. You're just in time for me to uh, talk about the drink specials in Verm. Oh, goody. <laughs> so... As I said, Leo's finals week, you could either bring in a job rejection letter, a failed final, or a report card that had an F on it, and you would get a free pitcher of beer. Wow. <laughs> that's 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 a free pitcher. Oh, what is it? Yeah. Milwaukee's best two or something like that? Oh my god. Oh, that's fun. Oh, uh Red Dog or something like that. Ice House. Oh man. What was what was your favorite drink special, Jack? Hmm, we're talking about uh, Mayas, right? Well, just oh, Verm in general, general. but... Hmm. Oh, inevitably, whenever we talk about drinks in Vermilion, it goes to Maya Janes. So maybe just their stupidly long list of shots. Or, they're... Yeah. actually, it wasn't a drink special, but... Well, okay, kind of, but... There's this one bar in Vermilion that never got their liquor license intentionally, but they got their beer license. The reason the are, are you going to bring up Shake a Day? The re, I'm getting to that. The reason that they never got their liquor license is so then they could price their beers even cheaper. Ooh. Yeah, really smart if you think about it. But and they had really really good prices on pitchers. In fact, me and DP bought many of those and just chilled out. I miss those days. But anyway, and that's also where they would do the English department would do open mic night at that bar. They did. Oh yeah, I went to plenty of open mic nights. I, I know there. the theater kids had like their like a fucking talent show they would do or do the something. Some anyway, they also had something called Shake a Day, where how much was it? Like a couple dollars. Uh, yeah, it was like a buck, like a or, buck two. or two. You had a, one of those uh, Yahtzee cups and a couple of six-sided die. And, you know, you'd shake it and then look at the results. And they had various prizes for what you would get. Like, they had sp special... And what was the winning combo? Was it all sixes? Yeah, if you, if you got a Yahtzee then uh like so it was like two bucks one dollar went into a pot and the other dollar went in the till so if you got a yahtzee then you got the pot and it was always like it was always in that like three or four hundred dollar range whenever somebody somebody won. would win it every couple of months too i know a guy who won it and i even called him that night just drunk off my ass and i was you know and shane's gone oh he's back anyway oh, there we go so I call this dude at like one or two in the morning. I was drunk off my ass in pier and he was in Vermilion for our homecoming. And it was Jacob, by the way, DP, you remember him okay. anyway? So I called yeah. him and he's like, yeah, Jack. And I just yelled into the phone, Jacob Grady, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> 
we do a lot of stupid shit when we're in college and drunk. Uh, right. Yeah. The uh, so I went to a small, uh, like, you know, small private Catholic school around Buffalo here uh, called St. Bonaventure. And um, there's only about 2000 students. And so you uh, were above all the silly drinking games. No, so. Oh, yes, absolutely. Of course, because there's there's plenty of things to do in a town of 900 people. I think the town was 900 people or something like that where it was. So. Yeah, there were townies, and that was a badge of honor to hook up with a townie, you know, as opposed to a student. Um, but yeah, there were four bars, one for each grade level, right? Freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. And so you there's so you, a freshman bar, there's a sophomore bar the next year, then junior, and then you you cross the street, you know, you're like, oh, I'm now a junior or senior, you know, it's you know, and they always would just you just have to have a, like the bare minimum fake ID. You know, just something that you you made with crayon or something like that. And you just, <laughs> and it was just, you know, they just let you in, you know, be, as long as you had something, right? Because then it falls to you if the cops ever pick you up. But they'll say, oh, no, we proofed everybody in the freshman bar, you know? Uh, so they, that was a way of shirking responsibility or passing it along to the student. Uh, but yeah, it was... Uh, a lot of good times. You had to walk a lot of places. You know, I didn't have a car for the first couple of years. Um, you know, so you warm up on Goldschlager. Oh, my God, all these. Oh, my God. You, you'd go out in the middle of winter and you're walking a mile or so, but then you just get right in the bar, have a couple shots of Goldschlager or Jägermeister or something to warm yourself up. And then, yeah, the bevy of. Rumpelmans was really popular. Oh, Rumpelmans. Yeah, oh my God. It's amazing, Rumpelman. So oh, man, and you're like, oh wow, you're actually drinking gold leaves. Oh yeah, you know, for Goldschlager or something. It's just like, oh wow, gold leaves, cool. You know, and then there's the bevy of you know Alabama slammers or Sex on the Beach or something. If you didn't want a beer, it's just like those stupid plastic cups worth of you know just a quarter of a shot of something with some syrup. Our uh, our favorite shot came from this place that had they had a uh 100 different types of shots and they had like a punch card and one each shot was three dollars but once you got through the punch card you got a t-shirt that said i completed all 100 shots i'm like you're spending 300 dollars for a flipping t-shirt guys like <laughs> but it's a badge of honor right it's it's right. yeah you'll, it you'll is. Keep that forever nice. but me and jack we would always go there because they had a drink called the flaming dead nazi um I and like it that. was it was Rumpelman's Jaeger and uh, Schnapps. What's that cinnamon? Schnapps. This is what our Nazi friend and, in this drinks. Oh yeah, yeah. Give me my Schnapps. Let, let me into the uh, medicine cabinet for my Schnapps. <laughs> he has a prescription. Yes, but, you he know, does. being being little history nerds, we always made it our our toast was to uh you know part of the drinking tradition of drinking a dead uh flaming dead nazi was to toast whatever family members served in world war ii before oh. you took the shot so nice you're welcome there's a there's a little thing you can try yeah i like that uh but i think it's uh it's about time to to rate this yes. film which uh if you haven't caught uh any of our other episodes we usually try to do a unique rating so it's at one to five stars we do you know 
God, what did we do for U571? One to five. Histor well, take our last take our last episode with Braveheart. We did one to five arrows in an ass because there was a guy who got shot in the ass with a arrow. That gives you an idea. So I'm open to suggestions. Nuclear torpedoes. Nuclear torpedoes. One to five nuclear yep. torpedoes. There you go. Jack. So this movie has an 86% on the tomometer and a 75% audience score. It seems the critics like this more. So I'm going to go with the critics on this one. But what is your rating? One right. to five. Um, I'd, I'd give this four nuclear torpedoes and, but, and one that's, eh, maybe has half the payload in it. So four and a half. So like four and a dud. Yeah. Four and a dud. Sure. <laughs> Sounds about right. Four and a dud. Shane, one to five nuclear torpedoes. Yeah, I'll give it a four and a dud as well. I was going to stick right with a four. You added the dud equation. Uh, which threw me for about two seconds, but yeah, four and a dud. I I think it's right up there. You know, not perfect, but enjoyable every time I watch it. And uh, you know, you see something new in it. You know, so I yeah, thank you. I enjoy it. Four and a dud. I don't do this rating very often, um, even though I just did it on our last episode. Um, the the things that I do get bugged by this movie. I think get outweighed by a its topic, um, the acting, the the things that it presents. It's it's a very interesting film. So the things that this film does right, I think outweighs the things that are kind of iffy with it. So, and also I love submarine films, and I I genuinely think this is a, a great film. I'm giving it five atomic torpedoes Whoa. wow i i'm speechless that's awesome i'm so glad you enjoyed it this is if i was ever to like if i was to become a high school teacher and had to teach the cold <laughs> war i would use this movie to teach it is how i feel yeah i I'd, I'd tell them this shit happened man <laughs> What are they, what are I they think gonna, it's. Well, what are they going to do? Say no? They weren't. They weren't. Jack's so sardonic. I love it. I don't think they would really care either. Um, no, kids are stupid. But yeah, they are. Um, no. <laughs> Teenagers are the thing, worst, man. They're the worst on the planet. It, ac it accurately Yuck. represents the the tension of the Cold War, and I think it genuinely shows how terrible and how how close like i think that's something that's terrible today is people forget like just because the soviet union fell apart like we're not any i i personally don't feel like we're any further away from nuclear annihilation than we were in the 60s you know it is one person with a bad day pushing the button for it all to be over. And that like this film, this film demonstrates that it's agree. You have one guy who is an idiot who takes things too far and the, the world ends. And I, like, 
I, I feel we're, like we're still in that position with how massive of a nuclear arsenal exists in this world. I'd like to add. Sorry to be a, sorry to be a buzzkill, but. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add that the doomsday clock is at 90 seconds to midnight. <laughs> it's never been this close. Yeah, that's the first time it's been as, I think. Yeah, it's never been this close. Have you guys read? That's something I, I have in my wheelhouse. But every every time they release the Doomsday, they release the report. And there's a lot of, because this goes back to 1947, I think it was. Uh, and I just want to read all of those reports from 47 or whatever is 48 through today, because they will explain the world situation at that time quite succinctly in maybe a three or four or five page report. Uh, and I just came across that when I heard about that 90 seconds to midnight thing. And I said, oh, I have to read these reports, even just for my own interest, but for work too. You know, I mean, it probably would help, you know, talk about the time period of our vessels and our ships and what they were going through. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, and you know, you're always going to get those cowboys that, you know, sometimes they're called pirates. They're all bluster. They push it to the limit. And the second they do something like the captain, uh, Finlander in this, you say, oh, shit, what did I actually do? So you put on this air of bluster. Oh, I'll take him down, do whatever. Yeah. But then when you actually do it, it's you realize you there's no right. going back. You just you know, can't, you can't go back. The captain in this film, right. it's, you know, one of the points of contention between him and the, the reporter is, you know, I th- He's like, I found you interesting because you made statements saying like, we didn't go far enough with the Cuba thing. And it's like, guys, if we went any further, that there wouldn't be a world like, and like that, this film is that perfect example where it's like, hey, if you think we should have gone further to Cuba, this is what would have happened. We would just nuked each other. Yeah, it's amazing to think. And I, I wasn't, again, I wasn't around for that time. But, you know, my parents had talked about being in high school during that. And, yeah, you see the ticker tapes going at the New York Times building. You know, they always show those black and white films, people reading the newspapers. Uh, and, yeah, I think it was totally like that, especially for that time. And the Sullivans, our destroyer, was part of the blockade for the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's what kind of helps me formulate a service here. So then that allows us to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, when we talk about that ship. So it's, uh, you know, they were all involved in the Cold War in various ways. And a lot of it is represented in this movie, tracking Russian targets and, <clears throat> you know, having top secret boxes on top of the missile house that you cover really quickly for a bear and all of that stuff. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time. And, and <clears throat> you know, when, it's kind of maybe to wrap it up, when we talked about the Little Rock, people say, oh, did they, you know, the Little Rock, she had missiles, the first guided missile system uh, with nuclear capable warheads. And she did her job by not firing a weapon in anger. And that's how I skew it when I'm talking to people. They're like, oh, did she ever fire a gun or a missile in anger? And I say, no. <laughs> right. And thankfully, she didn't. She did her job the way she well, well the fact that you're standing here, the answer yeah, is no. Right. Yeah, right. Because if one of those gets set off, you never know what's the chain reaction it starts. <clears throat> Fabulous. Oh, I'm so glad you guys liked the movie. That's awesome. No, it was it was great, and it was great having you on. Yeah, uh, thank you. At this time, we'd like to, to hand the floor to you if uh, you want to tell the people about uh, social media accounts for the museum, yourself, uh, 
anything, any kind of YouTube stuff, uh, any events that are coming up you want the people to know, uh, have at it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, John and Jack. It's been a pleasure uh, working with you guys on this. And I want to thank Ken from History X uh, for kind of making this connection. And I hope you guys got some uh, some interesting conversation uh, from me as well. I know I can be sometimes uh, probably pretty boring in a nerdy sort of way, but thank you. Um, yeah, for the Buffalo Naval Park, we have, uh, you know, our YouTube channel. Uh, we have a lot of passionate fans and um you know, I do a lot of YouTube. I'm the host for the YouTube. We have a, you know, it's Buffalo Naval Park uh, for all of our accounts, whether it's Facebook or Instagram. Uh, we do do a lot of events during the year. It was the 80th anniversary of our of the commissioning of our destroyer, the Sullivans, last year. This year, it's our, the Croker, the submarine. It's her 80th anniversary of her commissioning, and then next year is the commissioning of the USS Little Rock. So. Uh, the 80th anniversary. So we're all in that wheelhouse, 43, 44, 45. So we have three nice years to celebrate each of our vessels and uh, to tell their stories and the crew that lived aboard and some of the stories that uh, affected their lives. So uh, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, it's all Buffalo Naval Park. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty interactive with people. so you know it's it's just one of those things that uh, i enjoy interacting with our subscribers and our fans well that is that's great and to all our fans go ahead and give them uh, a like and a follow uh for us if you like this episode please leave a review the stars do matter uh you can find us on facebook instagram discord at the armchair commanders podcast i know i've shared this the last couple of times but I like to reiterate it. Our YouTube channel is now the same name as everything else for us is also the Armchair Commanders podcast. Yay. Yay. When you Google us on YouTube, it's you can actually find us now. Um, Jack, do you have anything else? I do not. <laughs> I <right>. donuts. <laughs> I donuts. I donuts. Right. That's good. That was a good one. I like that, Jack. Thanks. I made it myself. We're going to have to keep that next time we have a U-boat film. I Admiral Donuts myself. Yeah. Yep. That's sweet. Yeah, this has been such a pleasure, and I'm so glad that you guys are carrying on the torch of history. And it seems as though you do other – I didn't know if it was just 20th century war films. But, yeah, if you guys are – well, if you're doing Braveheart, for gosh sakes, and uh, Sterling Bridge and all that stuff, and Troy, you've mentioned. uh, If it's it's a war – if it's a war film, we're game, and we have a very loose definition of a war film. So <laughs> Me more so than him. Yeah, we we often have arguments in our, mm. our free time over whether or not something's a war film. It's basically a meme at this point. I'll text him something that very clearly isn't a war movie, and I'll say, is blank a war movie? And he'll usually respond with a curt no. <laughs> nice. He's a fun hater. <laughs> Yeah. The people like, will never know the things I've told Jack no to. Oh boy. Yeah. Look, all I'm just saying is that you could argue that Free Birds is a war movie. They're waging war against a holiday. Oh wow. Oh, I mean, do you include Star Trek in that or Star Wars? Yeah, or? And f- funny you mentioned that because we watched Star Trek Six once. And it was against great. my will, we watched Star Trek Six. Now what's th- what which one's that? Like that's uh Gen- undiscovered country i think oh oh yes that's right that's a good one it, yeah yes the star trek six is a a very 
it hits you over the head with its allegories to the Cold War. So, <laughs> nice. So I reluctantly let it slide. Right. Reluctantly. Man, it was great. Didn't Sweet. I give it one, <laughs> one pot of potatoes or something? Whatever the stupid rating was. Yeah, I, I think it was the pot because they vaporize a pot to prove a point. Well, I hope everybody has enjoyed this episode. Until next week, I have been John. And I'm Jack. Shane, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm Shane. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the connection. And I'm glad you guys again enjoyed the movie. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. Oh. Bye.